Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Quick um, recap, your notes, a brief recapitulation of some of the salient, most pertinent, important principles from previous sessions. I'm going to go to this very quickly to kick off to where we are going tonight. Amen? Now, God and His Word are, are one. God is never divorced from His, from His Word. He is His Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. The word was with God. God can never ever divorce, be divorced from Word. Secondly, we said God speaks primarily through His Word. What is heard as Rhema is spoken from the Logos. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, the Logion. You speak from the Logos, faith comes by hearing the Rhema, right? Thirdly, God is revealed through His Word. You can never ever know God if you don't prioritize His Word. His Word, the name of the Lamb, His Word is, or the name of the Lamb is the Word of God. Remember we said this? And he expresses his nature, our identity, and his function through his word. I'll talk about this more next week, those two aspects. How that you can know your, your purpose in life by studying the word of the Lord. Right? We'll share that with you next week. God discloses himself through his word. God will reveal himself to you through his word. How does this happen? The processes of accessing the word or hearing the word and obeying the word is the methodology by which he unveils himself to us in ever-increasing progression. You can write in your notes there, John 14, 21. He who has my sayings and does them, right, will be loved of me. I will come to him and I will disclose myself to him. So the methodology of disclosure is hearing and obeying. Every time we hear accurately and carefully obey, we partake of His divine nature. Right? So every time you hear and obey, you have the opportunity to partake and to share in His nature. You become a shareholder in His nature. As it says in First John, as He is, so are we in this world okay the word of god is an imperishable divine seed peter says it's an incorruptible seed when you hear that word it's like a seed being planted in your spirit right containing the complete dna code of divine nature and purpose when you hear the word the seed of the word containing all the possibilities of the divine is lodged deep inside of your spirit just think of your spirit or your heart as ground. You hear the word seed is planted, right? If carefully nurtured, that's going to grow. It's going to bear fruit, fruit of divine nature in your life, becoming more and more like God. And I love this. By it, 
We are brought forth. That's Peter's phrasings. We are brought forth or born again as sons of God through the incorruptible seed of the word of God. Peter also said that consistent obedience to the word purifies the soul. Remember? 1 Peter 2, right? right? Seeing that you've obeyed the truth, you've purified your soul to the love for the brothers, right? Every time you obey, you purify your soul. Everyone say soul. Your spirit, soul, and your body. When you get saved, your spirit man is entirely renewed. Your body will await final redemption when he comes. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruption puts on incorruption. It's an area of your soul, however, that you need to be renewed on a daily basis. That verse says, we, we discussed this in the very first lesson. That verse says, seeing that you have purified your soul right, in obeying the truth unto an unfeigned love for the brothers. So you bring purity and renewal to the soul, the renewing of the mind, Romans 1, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Every time you obey, you purify your soul. The level of fruitfulness born by the word in us is dependent upon the measure of hearing and obedience. How you hear and the degree to which you obey will determine the measure of productivity or fruitfulness that the word of God generates within within your life right we live by every proceeding word man shall not live by bread alone we discussed this by, by every proceeding word our commitment to position ourselves to hear and obey his word is based upon our high estimation honor and respect for his speaking when you discount his voice, you are prone to disobey. He who speaks must be esteemed. Every time you disobey, what you're really saying is, I have no honor or estimation for your voice or for your word. So Hebrews would say, see to it, do not refuse him who speaks from, from heaven. Do not refuse him who speaks from heaven. We are less prone to error, deception, when we prioritize the knowledge of his ways above his works. We read in the previous session, Deuteronomy 8, remember, where there was the access of the supernatural. Israel was experiencing marvelous provision and a movement from basic scarcity into abundant provision. And in that culture, they forget the Lord. And they forget God. Remember? They forget His ways. God says, when you come into the land, they shall not forget the Lord your God by disobeying His commandments. We made the statement, every time you disobey, God is forgotten. God is indeed forgotten every time His principles are no longer adhered to. But Israel did that in the culture of marvelous doings of God. So it's dangerous to know the works of God without knowing the ways of God. And the ways of God you learn from the scriptures. The Bible says Moses knew his ways, but Israel knew his works. 
when you know his ways, you will be able to handle and make sense of his works far more soberly, intelligibly. So you never ever seek to have God's doings or performance without knowing his principles or his person. Okay? You can be at Lazarus's tomb and see him call Lazarus from the dead. You can be privy to marvelous works. You can see the supernatural. But yet you can come away from that not knowing that he is the resurrection and the life. What he, d- he even said to, to one of the girls, the sisters who asked him, she said, I know my brother will live at the resurrection at the last day. He said, no, I am. The whole focus of the miracle was to amplify who he is. My issue is that people want works without allowing what he does to unveil his person. Right? Look at the seven I am statements in John. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. Right? Etc. Um, all the I am statements in John are all prefaced by a miracle. Right? The miraculous works was always intended to lead to unveil to you who he is. So in John 9, before he makes the statement, I am the light of the world, when he heals a blind man. Okay? God's works always intended. So here's a clue. Next time you are so flabbergasted by the works of God in your life, God broke through. He's going to break through tomorrow maybe for you. Don't be so fixated and live in the aura of what he did. Without You must always train yourself. God, what are you trying to teach me through this about who you are? I will not just relish in your works without coming to know you. You see, because you're going to forget the miracle after a while. But you will never forget the revelation of him to you. Right? So when the ram is caught in the thicket on the Mount Moriah, Abram says, now I know you, Jehovah Jireh. Right? That revelation, more than the ram, was remembered. Right? But it all comes down to what you prioritize. The more you're word-based, the more these things become normal for you. But if you're one of those Christians that hate the word and just want to see manifestation after manifestation after manifestation, right? Then you will always know God's works. And in, I don't know why I'm saying, laboring this point, but this whole teaching is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In the context of Deuteronomy 8, Israel knows great works, great marvelous doings, at the end of it, they go astray. What's the point in knowing God's bountiful doings and work in your life, and at the end of the year, you're far from Him? Hmm? So seek to know Him. Our rep- as our representation of Him grows, we become Him in our world. I want to stress that tonight, later on. All the Scriptures. Everyone say all Scripture. Remember we said this? All Scripture is given by inspiration of the Lord, not just the New Testament. All the scriptures reveal Christ and bring understanding and clarity to every season in God. I'm convinced, just like the two on the road to Emmaus, they understood their era or the epoch of time in which they live by an appeal to the scriptures. We'll we'll examine this thought in a later lesson. For example, in Acts 16, remember the apostles 
met to clarify the issue of circumcision. And there was appeal made to the book of Joel's prophecy. Right? More on that later. That's the forthcoming attraction. Lastly, the seed, I like this. The seed of the word becomes a son of the kingdom. Remember we compare the two parables. The parable where the sower went out to sow. Right? The sower was the preacher. The seed was the word. Straight after that, in the same passage, Matthew 13, Jesus tells another parable where the farmer sowed seed. It grew, but at night the enemy came and sowed thistles, thorns, weeds. And then they both grew simultaneously. And the question is, should we separate them? And he said, no, leave them to both grow together for at harvest time, we can separate the wheat from the tears. Now that seed sown, and what did Jesus, how did Jesus unpack the meaning of wheat? He says, the wheat are sons of the kingdom. The seed in early in Matthew that was the word, the seed now is a son. You who have the divine seed of God in you, the DNA. That seed must grow and develop, overtake your life, so that the seed which was sown in its fullest, most mature state on the earth, its representation comes forth as son. A mature son of God on the earth. Amen. That took too long to recap. <laughs> okay. Page two. Number one, leave James for now. Just go straight to number one. We'll come back to James in a moment. What I want to stress today, uh, we've entitled this the mirror of the word. That's why I have this mirror here, in case you haven't seen yourself yet. Um, how you hear is important. How you hear. Jesus was concerned about both what people heard and how they heard. For example, in Mark 4.24, the first part of that verse says, and he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. So, the content of what you hear is important. I want to encourage you, don't let your ears be the dumping ground for a whole range of voices. Be selective in who is speaking to your spirit. The primary voice that you should be entertaining should be the voice of your spiritual father. Other voices could be teachers and are valid. There are some voices we listen to that are valid, but the primary voice is my spiritual father. More importantly, don't allow a false voice to enter the landscape of your spirit. Don't let there be dilution or contamination. Jesus always stressed, be careful what you listen to. Okay? So the stress here is the kind of content that you allow into your life. But also in Luke 18 verse 18a, Jesus said, so take care how you listen. It's not just what you hear. It's how you hear what is accurate also that is very important. So let's assume you've clarified the first issue. I will take care of what I listen to. The second issue is equally important. Even when you're under the ministry of 
accurate word, even of your spiritual father, things could be lost if you are listening inaccurately. It's not just what you hear, it's how it's heard that is equally, vitally important. Now, Jesus stressed the importance of understanding what you hear. Now, the first point I want to make is this. In your hearing and in your desire to hear accurately, that is how you hear, one thing you must always um, prioritize highly, that whenever I hear, I will always understand. Right? Because you cannot obey intelligibly that which you don't understand. When you walk out of a service, know what to do. Don't just say, glorious, powerful message, I was blessed. How was the service? Oh, powerful, bro, powerful. Okay, what are you going to do? I don't know what to do, but powerful word. <laughs> I mean, be practical. Right? And understanding, listen carefully, in this context is the ability to comprehend intelligibly a principle from the word that is conveyed to you. You cannot obey that which you don't understand. So Psalm, the verse in your notes, Psalm 111 verse 10b says, A good understanding have all they that do. Your, your claim to accurate understanding is only evidence by what you do. I, you don't understand when you can articulate a biblical principle. right? You don't understand if you can verbally explain a a, a spiritual concept to somebody else. That is important, but publicly, accurate understanding is only validated and expressed when he who claims he's understood practically walks in that principle. A good understanding of all they that do. So, do you understand forgiveness? Hmm? Sure? I want to see when somebody offends you. Then I want to see what you do. You don't tell me, I can, Randolph, I can show you the theology of forgiveness. I can do a Bible study. Your understanding is only validated when that word is, tests you. Then you must walk in the principle of what you claim to understand. Hmm? Yes. Hallelujah. <laughs> understand. So think about this. In Matthew 15, 10, when Jesus is saying, hear and understand, his ultimate intention was to get people to a place of, oh, of obedience. Right? John says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth, or walk accurately, walk in obedience. Now, Hebrews 5, 11 says this. Listen carefully. Now, please, before you sleep tonight, read Hebrews 5, a lovely portion. The writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek, the king priest who lived in Abraham's time in the book of Genesis. And he's powerfully explaining um, significant things about this figure, spiritual things about Melchizedek. And he somehow just stops midway. His teaching comes to an abrupt end. This is what he says concerning him, verse 11, that's concerning Melchizedek. We have much to say, but it is hard to explain. Why? Because you are dull of hearing. Can you see how 
sometimes the spiritual condition of your audience can limit you in what you deliver. Right? So the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Concerning Melchizedek, I have much else to communicate about him. I can't because it's hard for me to explain it to you, not because of me, the problem not with me, of my inability to explain, but the hardness to understand lies with you, and he cites this as a reason. You are dull of hearing. Everyone do this. Come on. You are dull of hearing. Listen carefully. How you hear, this is where I want to tweak it and emphasize for this house. We have got to upgrade how we hear because that dynamic is going to allow God to release from this pulpit deeper and deeper mysteries. Now, what is dull of hearing? The Greek, nothros, simply means sluggish, lazy, slothful. Don't be a sluggish hearer. Don't be a lazy hearer. Don't be a slothful Hearer, now to fully understand what nothros, dull. You are dull of hearing in the spirit. Listen carefully. When you examine the context of Hebrews 5, straight after from verse 12 onwards, he starts to explain what he, what he means by you are dull of hearing. Let me just paraphrase. I don't have it here. But he says something like this to them. He says, for when you're dull of hearing, for when you ought to have been teachers, you have now need that someone again teaches you the basic principles, elementary principles of the faith. For by this time, he says, you ought to have been eating meat. But now I see that you have need of what? Milk. What's milk for? What's meat for? Maturity. He says, you have need of, he says, for you are still but infants. So even though I can't carry on with this Bible study he's saying to them about Melchizedek, because of where you are, I want to release it to you. But see, listen carefully, you've become dull of hearing. And how do I know that you are dull of hearing? You are demonstrating your dullness, your slothfulness, your laziness in hearing is evidenced to me by the fact that you are showing no progression to maturity. You are still with milk issues. And I can't even speak to you meat issues. Listen carefully. Whenever a community of God's saints shows absolutely no movement, progression, from infantile behavior to mature behavior, that congregation is dull of hearing. And you, I can even prophesy over the congregation, I'll come once, I'll come back 10 years later, and messages have not changed. Same frequency of speaking, no elevation, no growth. Why? The people in that house have been dull of hearing, showed no progression in their, in their walk with the Lord. Now that's a very, very bad place to, to be in the, in the spirit. And he uses the word time. He says, by this time... You ought to have been at a certain place after being so long. And I want to challenge us. May we all desire um, not to be dull of hearing. I'll talk more about this 
almost tempted to get into it now. This issue of unstopping. There's a, there's a Greek word I learned in the week, Hebrew word, which means, you know like sometimes you scoop the, what do you call the thing in your ear? The wax. You scoop the wax out of your ear. There's a lovely Hebrew word I learned. It means to excavate the ear. To unclog, unblock the hearing. Hmm? If you want to take a note, Psalm Psalm 40, verse 7. And then cross-reference that, but there's the the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes that verse in the book of Hebrews. And you'll see the implications. I want to talk about those two portions next week. And you know what he says? Your dullness of hearing makes a phrase, because you have become unskilled in the word of righteousness unskilled or unaccustomed to handling the word. What did Paul say to Timothy? Rightly divide the the word of truth. I'm amazed at how unskilled people are today in the word. We are fundies in the wrong things. We are experts in the wrong things. We give time, emphasis. That's why I'm so serious about our word thoughts, our daily confrontation with the word must, you must be so wordful, you must be an irritation to someone that is not. They encounter you, all you get is word. You hit any button on this body, what you'll get is word. Right? You offend me, what comes out is a scripture, even for my offense. Right? You joke with me, even my jokes are word-based. And some people don't laugh at my jokes anymore because... You know what I'm saying. A different language. If you know what the scripture, you'll be laughing now. My response in a difficult situation is word. I don't think my own opinions. My thoughts are framed from my knowledge of the word. And I want to challenge all of you. How much time are you spending daily? Has, Has it become the level of priority that it should be in your life? By this time, I would say like the writer of the book of Hebrews, by this time, after all my encouragement, do I still need to encourage you for another few more weeks before you get your act together? Hmm? I want to say this again. God echoed this in my spirit today. If they don't appreciate the level of revelation that is coming to them, I will take you to people that will. The frightening thought that entered my mind. The second time, this thought has dawned upon me. I want to encourage you. Um, People are hungry. Jules gets um, good remarks about people consuming this material. One person couldn't wait for tonight's session, wanted it this morning. We emailed her. She got this before you did. How many people are emailed? I can't. There's about 90 people we're emailing this note to all over the world. And people are lapping it up. There's an appreciation for what is being received. And guess what? Audience, our audience now is growing and is not restricted to this group. Hmm? Not restricted to this group. Sometimes my only lament is that those who should have been the greatest beneficiaries of this grace are not. Only a select few of us. I want to encourage you. Let's prioritize the gathering on a Friday evening. 
It's going to be, I told, I told you in church on Sunday, this is where you are found out, not on a Sunday morning. This is, for me, the church. Right? Sunday we attract all, all kinds of people. Hmm? But these are sons we can shape and develop for, for the purposes of the, of the Lord. Amen? So take heed how you hear. Right? How you hear. Now, let's read James chapter 1 verse 14. It's on the top of page 2. Same page we were on now. By the way, if you want to, at the bottom of page 2, just take this note down. Just write the word infant and just make two, two arrows. Because the writer of the book of Hebrews says they are still infants, eh? And infancy, there are many expressions of infancy in the word. The one is, the one arrow, no growth in the word. No growth in the word. And the second one is carnality envy jealousy strife if you're living in that realm you're an infant in the in the scriptures you're an infant in the kingdom the reference there is first corinthians chapter 3 verse 1 to 3 first corinthians chapter 3 verse 1 to 3 right now i just threw that in for your own further study let's read james as our main text tonight okay now we're really starting okay welcome to this session <laughs> Now I feel like I can start the study. Amen. Verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. But do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his own will, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his, among his creatures. So notice what, how James is arguing. He's calling upon us not to be entangled or to be deceived by Lust, right? Because lust leads to sin, and sin leads to death. Then he focuses in verse 16 on the issue of deception. Do not be deceived. There is the deceptive nature of sin, which if not checked, could lead to death. You think you're fine, but you're dying spiritually slowly, right? And then he says, he reminds us, oh, by the way, remember, in the exercise of his own will, how did you come forth? You came forth by the word of truth, the seed of the word, right? This know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I like that, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath or anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the the righteousness of God. And he warns about anger, which is a negative human trait in this context. Right? Verse 21. Now, therefore means therefore. Whenever you read the word therefore in the Bible, always ask, what is it therefore? <laughs> therefore means, in the light of everything I've just said, now I'm making my punchline statement. 
In other words, you cannot understand verse 21 without taking cognizance of what he's just said. Right? So he speaks about the deceptive nature of sin. Right? He speaks about being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to being angry. And it reminds us how you came forth into the kingdom. You were brought forth by the word of truth. So that you would be a standard of first fruits in creation. He says, therefore, what must you do now? Put aside all filthiness. All that remains of wickedness. And how? In humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Everyone say with humility. That's a clue. How you hear is important. James says receive the word how? Your disposition in training yourself to hear accurately is how I must hear with you. James says this. Now James of all the apostles is hailed as one of the most practical. Right? This guy simply says, if you're sick, call the elders. Then pray for you. No problem. Deal done. <laughs> okay. He says, if you have faith, no problem. Show me your works. What are you doing about that? About the faith that you claim to, that you claim to have. Okay. And he says, listen carefully. Whenever you're under the listening of, hearing of the word of the Lord, hear with humility. Let's just finish read this. But prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks at his natural face in a, in a mirror. So if you're a hearer and not a doer, like someone looking at a mirror, his natural face in a mirror, right? once he has looked at himself, he's gone away and immediately has forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, abide and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man is blessed in what he does. On page three. Humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Now, note, receive the word with humility. What is humility? The Greek protest means mildness of disposition. If you, if you are humble, you are mild, mildly disposed. You have a gentle spirit, a soft, tender spirit. You are meek, not weak. Don't underestimate humility and equate it for weakness. I'm not talking about someone that's a pushover. Humility is not humility for me is one of the most strongest positions in the spirit. Right? Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. Not so the Bible says it. Meekest man among men among men. You know, if, if I had to choose a man to lead millions of people for 40 years through a desert, I wouldn't choose Moses. I would have chosen autocrat, some forceful person. I mean, who's going to lead this, command all these people? Not call in a wilderness. I would make a, I, in my natural mind, I would have chosen someone with strong mind, strong personality, 
uh, loud voice, you know, leader of leaders. God says, no, for this task, I need the humblest of men on the earth. Where is he? Moses, meekest man, come. Meekness is not weakness. It's a gentle, humble, mild disposition of spirit. The opposite of, of humility is what? Pride. Pride is full of self. Um, independence, uh, dependent on your own ingenuity, right? Humility is always dependent upon the Lord. So humility is one who has divested himself of himself. He has no reliance upon his own resources or ability. He's humble and meek, right? Now, how important is humility in receiving the word of the Lord? Oh, by the way, contextually, uh, James says, be slow to speak. Quick to, sorry, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Who has an anger problem here? <laughs> Anybody? Who's easily, your, it doesn't take much to set you off. It's like just a button here, someone presses, gee, then they're going to know. <laughs> okay. I want to encourage you. The Bible says the anger of God does not achieve the righteousness. The anger of men does not achieve the righteousness of God. I put that scripture on Facebook in the week. The anger of men does not achieve the righteousness of God. Right? It is a requirement also for eldership. An elder must not be one that is soon angered. Now I have been in some meetings in my previous lifetime. <laughs> where literally elders would want to take it to the street. And I sat here, I thought, Lord, is this, what have I come into? This is the kingdom. I want to encourage you, an elder must be gentle. But the Bible says, women and wives generally, Peter says, must be of a quiet and gentle spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Amen. And all the ladies said, Amen. <laughs> Help. <laughs> humility. So listen carefully. I'm saying that because humility also is the opposite of anger. Right? Psalm 25. Listen to the psalm. Verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. And He teaches the humble His way. Remember we spoke on way versus works? Who will know the ways of God? A humble man will know the ways of God. Also, listen carefully. Secondly, so receive the word with humility. Secondly, receive the word with fear, reverence, and high esteem. Now we've covered this. But just look at Psalm 25 verse 12 to 14. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the, the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make known, make them know his, his covenant. Right? Whoever fears the Lord, right? um, God will instruct him. Psalm Isaiah 66, we had this verse before. Look at verse 2. The bold part, but to this one will I look, to him who is humble 
and of contrite spirit and who does what at my word? He trembles at my word. Do you tremble at the word of the Lord? Did you know that whenever a prophet came into a city in the old times, they would always inquire, do you come in peace? Because they knew this guy had a bad word for the city. We're in deep trouble here. So they inquired, do you, there's such reverence. You know, they saw a prophet as one who carried the word of the Lord. It wasn't the man, it was his representation. He represented God speaking to them. And so they always viewed him with great reverence and, and respect. So God's, who, who cannot fall the heavens, has chosen to dwell with someone that is of a humble and a contrite spirit. I, I want to encourage you. You know what? We need to extract every bit of pride out of us. If you sit there and you hear the word, how you hear is important. I'm stressing tonight the disposition of being humble, of having no anger, no issues, pulsating and boiling in your mind while you're hearing, and yet you are raging. Internally, you lose the power of the word. The word of God is only able to save, he says. Receive the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. The ability inherent within its saving power is only released dependent upon how it's received. You receive it with humility. You activate its saving power. James says, this word is able to save you if you receive it correctly. But if you sit there and you rebel against it and with all sorts of... Let me just say this. To be humble, I got it somewhere in the notes as well. To be humble also means not to be opinionated. Everybody has a view today. But if you are humble under the word of the law, what you say is, I take my opinion and I put it aside. I receive what I'm hearing tonight as the word of the Lord unadulterated from God's spokesperson. I receive it with such humility. I have a gentle spirit. I'm mild. I'm calm. No anger, no raging. I've quietened my soul. And you receive it in that disposition. I guarantee you, the implanted word, saving power, will be released in your life. And we had Hebrews 12, 25 before. See to it, you don't refuse him who is speaking. Amen. Hallelujah. I think it's a good place to stop. So in humility, let's take our tea break. Amen. Um, we said that um, how you hear is important and that you must hear with understanding. Do not be dull of hearing. Your dullness of hearing is indicated by lack of progression or movement in your maturity in God. And then we cited that you need to hear with humility, which is a mildness of spirit, meekness of heart, mildness of disposition. Um, it's the opposite of pride and anger. It's when you're not opinionated, but you are lowly, and you have this desire to know God, to know His ways. And then we said you must always reverence and and fear the Lord and have a high estimation for His voice or for His speaking. And the secrets of the Lord will be communicated to you. Thirdly, at the top of page 4, we must receive the Word as the Word of God expressed through 
men. Okay, now, let's read First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, As we read this, bear in mind that Paul is the spiritual father of um, the churches at Thessalonica. And we know that because of the manner in which he writes in fatherly terms to them. In First Thessalonians 2, 9, he says, For you recall, brothers or brethren, our labor and hardship, our working night and day so as not to be burdened to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. Just as you know how we were, notice three things, how we were exhorting, encouraging, and begging. Imploring means to literally beseech. Paul's on his knees and he's saying, please get your act together. Begging. So he exhorts, encourages, and implores each one. How? As a father would his own children. So he speaks in, in, a, in a fatherly spirit to them. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, all of Paul's exhortations and his encouragement, his, um, his imploring of them, was from a fatherly position. He establishes this fact in his mind. Right? It's different when an exhortation comes from a father as when it comes from a brother. It's different when an exhort- and a word of encouragement comes from a father as when it comes from a brother. It's different when a, a beseechment, a begging comes from a father as it would come from a brother and he cites as the reason for his exhortation his encouragement and his imploring of the Thessalonians the reason is simple I want you to walk verse 12 in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and and glory the punchline is verse 13 for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you for what reason? The reasons I'm exhorting, encouraging, imploring you that you walk worthy of God. He says, for this reason, I'm thankful to God that you, are, you, you guys at Thessalonica are actually going to walk worthy of the Lord. Why? He says, I'm, my mode of writing is one of thanks to God for you because I know this result will be achieved in your life. Why? And here's the reason. He says, I constantly thank God when you received the word from God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. The word of God which performs its work in you who believe. A powerful, powerful portion of Scripture. God's Word performs. Everyone say performs. Paul is convinced this Word can perform things in you, but only based on how you receive it. He says because when you received and accepted it, two things. You received it not as a man, the Word or the opinion or the view of a man standing in front of you, but you received it as the very words of God. Because of how you receive it, you've released its power to perform. 
two Greek words. The words for received is paralambano, which means to take near, with, or to one self. Look at verse 13 again. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. Right? Receive paralambano means you took it near to yourself. The opposite would be to repel and to keep it far from you. But to internalize it and to take it as part of your own. So it's not just a matter of you sitting there and listening. You literally got to take and make it your own. You got to own the word that is preached to you. Got to make it part and parcel of your life. But he said, listen carefully, you received the word which you heard, the word of God, you heard it from us, you received, you took it to yourself and accepted it. Amen? Now listen carefully. The word accepted in the Greek is dekomai, which in your notes, as explained, means to accept and offer deliberately or readily to take to oneself what is presented or brought by another. But the third part of your definition is very important. Put an NB there where it says metaphorically, it means to receive and to admit with our heart and mind. To admit, to allow admittance or entrance into. To admit into your heart and into your mind. And listen carefully, by implication, to approve of it, to embrace it and to follow it. So when you hear the word, what's your responsibility? You will receive it, draw it near to your mind, and you've got to accept it. When you accept it, you give it admittance into your heart and in your mind. You approve it. It's like you take your stamp of approval and say, yes, this is mine, this is for me. I say, yes. That's why when we agree, what do we say? Amen. Right? We need to bring back the culture of amen. To the apostolic season. <laughs> you know why? Nehemiah 8, read it. They read for, for six hours. And the Bible says, And all the people shouted, Amen! Amen! Twice. They shouted. What does Amen mean? So be it. Right? So be it. You're not just... Listen carefully. I know the culture of Amen in most circles now. It's, it's lost its uh, original... Meaning it's now become like a cliche, you know. But I really want to encourage you. If, say it out loud, if, if you, you're hearing something, you receive it, you own it to yourself, admit it into your heart and mind, you approve, you say, yes, this is true, amen. That's why I do it. Every time I hear something, you heard me at the Sanson conference, I was about one of the few saying amen consistently. Amen. It's true. I'm not just... I'm not just saying it to approve you as the preacher. What I'm doing is something for me. I'm saying amen for me, not for anybody else. I'm saying amen, yes, I receive that. That is true. I take it into my heart and mind. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. So we'll have more amens on Sunday. Yes, amen. But listen carefully. Paul is saying here, when, when we preach to you, Paul and his associates, his sons in the Lord, including Timothy here, 
He says, you did not receive the word as the word of men, but you received it for what it really is. It's the word of God. But look at verse 13. And it is highlighted for you already. The word of God, which you heard from us. Now, let me just say this to you. You can read the notes in your own time. Let me just paraphrase that. You cannot receive the word without receiving the messenger of the word. You can't stand and say, don't like you. Don't like you one bit. What you're saying is very nice. I approve what you're saying, but you. You know what? In this season, that is illegal. It's illegal also for the one's ministry. Because the one's ministry must be a true representation of what they say. There must be no dichotomy between the, the preacher and the message. Between the messenger and the message. Between the person and the proclamation. No, can't separate the two. In fact, take this verse down. I should have put it in your notes. Habakkuk 1 verse 13. Not Habakkuk, sorry, Haggai. Haggai 1 verse 13. Let me quote it to you. Then spoke Haggai, the Lord's message, the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people. So Haggai is standing, he's saying, uh, in his book, then spoke Haggai, comma, the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. So he who speaks is the Lord's messenger in the message. You can't divorce messenger from message. It's like when this guy, as a prophet, stands, he becomes the visible uh, embodiment of everything he's prophesying. So he says, I, the Lord's messenger, stand to you before you in the message. Right? You are the letter, Paul would say, known and read by all men. You must become the word. Now, um, it's very important. Paul is saying, listen carefully. You receive the word of God which you heard from us, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, right? Which performs its mighty work with, within you. You received it and you accepted it, you approved of it. Now this leads directly on to the fourth requirement. Right? So the third requirement is receive the word as the word of God expressed through men. When you approve of the word, you approve of their messenger also. Because the, the, the word and the messenger have become one. Okay? But now the fourth, the fourth feature or principle of how you hear is, you must receive or hear the word, I like this, with eagerness and commit to a process of personal inquiry. This, I feel, is so lacking in the church today. Now, let's read Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 13. Please follow with me. Very interesting story here. Now, when they had traveled through Apollos and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was the synagogue of the Jews. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them, from the scriptures. I like Paul's methodology. Right? He 
reasoned. Everyone say reasoned. Go right down to the bottom of the page. The word reason is there in the Greek. So what is Paul doing with Jews in the synagogue? Reasoning. It means to speak back and forth alternately. To converse. He's not preaching to them. Paul's methodology, yes, he used preaching at times. But what is he doing in this context? He is having dialogue. Right? This is the first DOA. Dialogues on the apostolic. Right? He did it for three consecutive Sabbaths. He met with the Jews. He says, let me reason with you. Let's go forth backwards and forward. Let's talk, dialogue. Let's reason. And it says to present an intelligent discourse. To say thoroughly or to discuss. What is the point of his discussion? Go back to verse 2. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. And verse 3. Explaining and giving evidence of what? That the Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So he proves that Jesus is the Christ by referring to the... Once again we see Christ is led out of the scriptures. Paul does this. Now here's the result. What's the, what's the rate of Paul's success? Verse 4. Everyone says some. Right. Some were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks. The Greeks is the intellectual mind. If you make a note. These are the thinkers of the day. These are the intelligentsia of the day. Call fool these guys. Greek mind of that era was the intellectuals of their time. So, listen carefully. Verse 4, who is the some referring to there, by the way? Some believe, who is that? The Jews, not so? From the synagogue. These were Jews, so that, that's the some were persuaded. Some Jews, but then a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Apparently, they were like influential women in the city and they were all part of the DOA. Dialogues and the apostolic. They came to the meeting. Yeah, Paul is, I can just picture Paul, maybe a lecture like this. He's arguing from Isaiah. He says, check what Isaiah is saying about the Christ. And the Bible says, say, we'll say persuade. You must study this verse, this word persuade in the Greek. Right? We look at it later. Paul had the capacity as an apostle to persuade someone into believing his way. Right? To indoctrinate the mind, it means. To persuade, right? To come into the person's thinking and to change their thought patterns. Right? We bring arguments down, Paul says. The weapons are warfare, not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, bringing into captivity every thought, right? Etc. Now, let's go on. The problem arose because of his success. Some Jews became jealous. And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. These guys go for all the, the bad fellows. Right? They go into the dark areas of town. <laughs> the gullies and everything. And they get all these guys to join their, their agenda. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. Attacking the house of Jason. Jason's a believer here. Attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them to bondage, to bring them to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason. They can't find Paul and the other guys. 
and Silas. So they take it out on Jason. Poor Jason. They did not find him. They began dragging Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Now they go to city hall, the municipalities. Now they pull the mayor out of the city. Let's take this matter to the highest possible government in the city. They're shouting, these men who have upset the world have also come here also. <laughs> That's a nice, nice reputation. I, I'm part of the group that upsets the world. <laughs> so these guys upsetting the world, they've also come to your city. Right? Jason And Jason has welcomed them into his house. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, which was the Roman emperor at the time, saying that there's another king, Jesus. So when you say that to Roman officials, they'll immediately think you want to you have plots to overthrow the Roman government. So using spiritual arguments in a political scene, right? False accusations. Now yes, here's the result. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. The brethren immediately excuse me, sent Paul and Silas away by night. So they were hiding somewhere. They realized it's not safe for Paul to remain. At night, they sneak off. Where do they go to? Berea. Chequavara Road on the Berea. <laughs> oh, we, in the scripture you see how God put us in here before time began. You're in the right place at the right time. Amen. We are the Bereans. Hallelujah. Right? Paul and Silas went away tonight by, to Berea. And they, when they arrived, they went into the... Hey, it's as if Paul hadn't learned the lesson yet. You just come from a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica. You almost lost your life. Now you... Paul was... I like Paul's attitude. Yeah? Nothing gets this guy down. He says, even if I have to die for the ministry, I'm prepared. Right? You would think he'd take a sabbatical at least. He goes straight back into it. Goes back into the synagogue of the Jews. But here's verse 11. Now, these, who are these? Say Jews. But these are Berean Jews. These are not Thessalonian Jews. Just come from, from Thessalonica. These Jews are different. How are they different? Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. The word... Um, Right at the bottom of your page, eugenists for more noble-minded. What distinguished their nobility and made them more noble from the Jews in Thessalonica? Now, nobility indicates class, rank. You have a different ilk. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is saying these guys, Jews in Berea, are more noble. But listen carefully. Their greater nobility was is defined in terms of their mindedness more noble minded and their nobility their, their more noble mindedness is defined in their attitude to how they receive paul's preaching right now this was the attitude it says listen carefully that received the word with i like this I should underline i should have bolded this great eagerness not just eager great eagerness do you come to the friday night with great eagerness or do you come dragging your feet oh it's that time again 
But what I'm saying is, there should be an eager disposition by which you receive the word of God. Go over to the next page quickly. The, the Greek for eager is prothumia, which means zeal, spirit, a readiness of mind, alacrity. Right? Eagerness includes willingness to receive as true that which you hear. The Thessalonian Jews rebelled and were antagonistic to the word. The Berean Jews eagerly and joyfully received the word. Eagerness incorporates cheerfulness. Are you happy that you're here? Cheerful, enthusiastic, fervor, willingness, zeal. The opposite would be disinterest, disinclination, apathy, aversion, indifference, slowness. Amen? I want to ask you seriously, are you eager that you're here? Because how you, how you receive the word, in this case with eagerness, will determine the word's impact in your life. If you sit there and say, couldn't the session end half an hour ago? <laughs> what you're going to do is you're going to short circuit the blessing of the word that is coming to you. Like when I go to Apostle Thamo's POAs or the schools or any kind of conference, we sit there with literally a bated breath waiting to receive for, for the servants of the Lord to open their mouths and to start teaching. Okay? We're usually the first ones, we're very early, book our seats, position our hearts and minds, eager to receive the word, to, to receive the word of the Lord. Amen? So I want to encourage you, be be eager. But go back to page 5, it says, just to finish the verse, they received the word with great eagerness, comma, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Right? Now, on the next page, the Greek for examining is anakrino, which means literally to scrutinize, to investigate, or interrogate, or determine. Okay? So, listen carefully. This um, disposition is different. Listen carefully. They received, like the Thessalonians did, and accepted Paul and his word as true. There wasn't a rejection of the word. There was wholehearted embracing of what they've heard. So they received the word with eagerness. But with that eagerness, there was examination. You don't just be gullible and receive everything as true. You go home and what do you do? You validate what you've heard. That doesn't mean while hearing it, you sit there judgmental and saying, I'm only going to believe when I've checked it out. So you don't sit there with a, with a judgmental view. You sit there with willing reception and acceptance of the word. You're trusting in the fact that the one who preaches, usually your spiritual father or teachers, has become the message. So I resonate with what he says. I even say, yes, amen. I'll say it loudly, yes. But what is my personal responsibility? When I leave, I must go back to my private closet and I must scrutinize or investigate the scriptures to see if what was said is true. Amen? 
It's a good position to adopt. Hallelujah. So I like to, to t- uh, uh, phrase this as eager and examining. You be eager and you examine. You be eager and you examine. That's going to just make you a more noble-minded believer. Right? You'll be of great, greater rank and class than the one who simply hears without being personally responsible to, to validate what he has heard. Now check the result out. Eh? The result in verse where? Verse 12. The result in verse 12 says, therefore many of them believed. Right? This is different to verse 4 where it says, some of them were persuaded. Yeah, the result is, many believed. What? Many Jews believed. Notice the Greeks also part, along with a number of, now it, just, it doesn't say, in verse 4 it says, God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Yeah, it says, a number of prominent Greek women and men. The apostolic word appeals to the intellectual mind. These are not just Greeks now, they are prominent Greeks. I believe we're going to see the influx into the church, embracing the apostolic message. An influx of very, very wealthy people. The influx of highly influential people. The influx of highly intelligent people. This doesn't mean that others will, that are less intelligent will not. It's going to be all embracer. But I believe this sector, this class of humanity, um, which in the previous season somehow rejected what was presented to them, in this season, listen carefully to where we are going. I want this house to start becoming eager in what you hear and examine what you hear. You know why? We're going to generate in this culture, in this our local community, a particular thing that cannot be quantified in the spirit. It's called more noble. It's something that's going to be attractive to the intellectual and influential prominent people in our city will come here. And was not that one of our prophecies? Hmm? Prominent people will come. Right? But when they come, they're going to come into a group that is eager and examining. And they will fit right in. Because that's how they are wired. That's how they are wired. They're not being judgmental, but that's how they are wired. Amen? And I believe that will be the, the culture. So be eager and commit to a process of personal inquiry. Amen? At the bottom of us of page 6, I'll just put two notes. I've said this already in James 1.21. When the word of God is received with meekness or humility, it's able to save the, the soul. The saving ability of God's word relative to the on process, ongoing process of renewing the mind is only released dependent upon whether it is received in humility. Humility includes divesting yourself of your own opinions and preconceived ideas about the word and the one who brings that word to you. I like this in the New Living Translation, 2 verse 13. 
We never stop thanking God when you received his message from us. You didn't think, didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. Hmm? But you receive them for what they were, the word of. So next time when I minister the sermon, you mustn't conclude this is Vandal's view. It's not a word from man. It's the word of God. Amen. When you receive it as the word of God, what does Paul say? Here's the next dot. It performs its work in you who believes. The Greek for perform is energio, which means to be active, to be efficient, to be effectual. The word is active in you when you receive it as the word of God and not as the opinions or, or the idea of a human. To be mighty, to be operative, to be at work. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, let's go on as we conclude this, this study, the last few pages. I hope we get through this. I didn't bring all my mother for nothing. All the way for nothing. <laughs> Amen. Um, James, now, listen carefully. He starts to liken the effects of reading and hearing. We use that consistently, those two phrases. Hearing the word of the Lord and also your own private reading and studying thereof. As you're looking into a, looking into a mirror, right? Now look at the first paragraph underneath there. Let's just read the verse just for, as, as a reminder in verse 23, it says, If anyone is a, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgets or has forgotten what kind of person he, he was. Now, when you look in the mirror, those of you who spent a lot of time here, what do you do? In the morning, you check yourself out. You know, you straighten your clothes. Tuck your stomach in if you can. <laughs> what, what do you do? What are you doing? What does the mirror tell you about you? Hmm? The mirror is, is actually a reflection of your state as you truly are. Nothing more, nothing less. It reflects your, your condition externally. It is a reflection of reality. It's what is, is shown forth in what you see. As you see it, so it exists. Hmm? So a mirror is a reflection of your external condition. Right? Now, what a mirror is to us in the natural, the word of God to us is in the, in the, in the spiritual. Next time you open your Bible... Imagine that you're looking into a mirror. Start to see yourself in the Word. I'll explain shortly. Whereas the natural mirror reveals your external condition, the Word of God is the reflection of your internal state of heart and mind. I got that. Lee. While the natural mirror reveals our external appearance, the Word of God exposes our internal state of heart and mind. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged 
sword. Piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. Now, you know, the, even that soul-spirit division is so, um, in, in some people's minds, a gray area. The Bible says the only thing that can truly separate soul and spirit is what? Word. The word pierces even to the dividing separation of soul and spirit. And what does it do? It's the joints and the marrow and is able to judge what? Thoughts. And your thoughts are the unseen part of you, not so? Your thought life is not known to men, only known to you and God. And the intentions, the ambitions, the desires of your heart. So the Word of God is able to cast light on your thought life and your intentions, your ambition, the desires of your heart. Now, what does, remember Christ is always led out of the Scriptures. The Scriptures testify of Christ. The Scriptures speak of Christ who is the nature of God. The Word of God is the standard of divine nature for us. Every time you open your book, the Bible, or you hear the Word of God preached to you, every time what is being presented to you is, is Christ. So when I look into what James calls the mirror, the perfect law of liberty, I see Christ in all of the pages. The more I see God in his book, the more I see where I am. In reference to what I see of him, I discover my true self. It's not like a natural mirror that shows you exactly where you are. How do you know what you look like? In the spirit. You only know what you look like in the spirit when you see yourself in reference to him. And as you see him in the pages, you discover where you are. Now over and over again, you'll see this pattern in the scriptures. Why did Isaiah say in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am undone. What, what went on before that? Isaiah 6, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Every view of God is a view of yourself. So as you look into the law, the, the, the law of liberty, the word of God, portrays the nature of God to you. But subconsciously, God shows you Him to show you you. God will show Himself to you so that you can appreciate where you are in reference to Him. And just like in the natural, you know, you come to a mirror, and let's say something's out of joint. Let's say this, the buttons aren't done yet, and I'm looking untidy. What do I do? I come and say, Oy, something's out of sync here. So what do I do? I quickly adjust. Because I want to look the best I can, not so? Now, so I look the best I can after looking at myself in the mirror. Whenever I come to the, to, to, to the mirror of God's word, his word portrays him. And as I see him, I see where I am. You can only see yourself by seeing him. You can only understand where you are. Listen carefully in the spirit by every revelation of himself. Every time he reveals himself, he's actually showing you where, where you are. Hmm?
So he meets the woman at the well. Let's say you're reading John 4, your devotions one morning. And you see how graciously he deals with this prostitute who went through six men. He is now living with the seven, and she's not married. And you say, God, if I was there, I'd have written this woman of long ago. And you see how grace deals with, with the issue of sin. And you say, Lord, see how graciously you and with wisdom you engage that woman. I'm nowhere near that. Let me adjust to be like you. I only understand where I am for what I've seen of what you are in your word. Every revelation of God in his word reveals where you are. That's why David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, try my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the, lead me in the way ever, everlasting. Look at the top of page 8. I want to stress this. Listen carefully. I'm going to read this, this portion. God literally unveils himself through the scriptures to you in order to allow you to assess where you are in reference to his nature. God will show you yourself by showing you himself. You came from him. You were chosen in him before time. Thus in truth, when you read or hear the word, you see yourself perfected in God and complete in Him. And you may have to realign this position as you discern deviation in your life from what God predestined for you to be in Him. That's very important. Tell you never we're chosen in Him before time. Literally, listen carefully. As you see Him, you are seeing what you were in Him before time. That's how you see yourself. You see, but what I see in actually, in actual reality, is so far removed from what He's made me to be in Him. So I adjust. Take this verse down. Again, Psalm 40 verse 7. I gave it to you earlier. Just love this phrasing. Some, that portion is a messianic because it points to Jesus. Psalm 40 verse 7 says this, the first part. Then said I, lo, it is written in the volume of the book concerning me. In the volume of the book it is written. I delight to do thy will, O God. Please see it, say this after me. In the volume of the book it is written about me. I'm convinced God has scripted me in his word. I am there. I need to see myself there. I can only see myself by seeing him. I am complete in him. And when I see my completeness in him by the study of his word, I quickly obey and readjust my life now to align with that what he has made me to be. Amen? So if I'm racked by fear and I read, he has not given me a spirit of fear. I'm saying my, my fearful, uh, nervous, shy. You know I was a very shy person? Personality-wise? And... My whole family has got a very shy disposition. I'm the last of six children, the baby in the family. Literally, those of you who know my family, some of you know them. Everyone doesn't speak. Everybody is reserved, quiet. Right? And here now, I come from that milieu, from that environment. Yeah, God, but I want you to be my spokesperson. 
That's why God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the. God will always choose you in the area where you're the most least qualified by natural standards. So they unuse you as a spokesperson. Right? And you know what, what happened in my youth? Fortunately, God saved me when I was young. Every time I'd engage, I see, God, you called me to this. I see myself like that. But look where I am now. What I see transforms me to be like what you originally made me to be. I see myself in the mirror of you. That's why I discover who God made you through the mirror of his word. Don't let anyone predetermine through even your upbringing, your history, people's view, opinions of you, what you should be and how you should function. In the volume of the book, it is written about you too. And what Jesus said in the next verse, after Psalm 40 verse 7, I delight to do your will, because your law is in my heart. Your word is in my heart. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is in my heart. Listen carefully. As you hear and study the word of God, I like this, the God of the word reads and studies you. As you read the word of God, the God of the word reads you. In other words, as you read and you see the Christ nature, what is revealed is actually studying you and readjusting you and aligning you. Now, listen carefully. Let's say I... Who's got a scarf or something Audrey, hallelujah. This should be worn like this. Okay, just imagine me to be female. Right? Check this out. Check the mirror. That's how you wear these things, now. Okay. What if, what if I I do this? Let's say, maybe that's acceptable. And I wear this thing like I'm walking in town. How's it, guys? You know. And what if, what, if, what if before this, I actually did this? Hey, you're looking good, man. Check out, you, you're right. What have I just done to the natural mirror? Now, listen carefully. I have, let's say this is totally unacceptable um, in the world for me to dress like that publicly. And this is the acceptable thing. But I leave the mirror looking at this and carrying on. Right? What have I just done? I have imposed, I have imposed my standard of acceptance upon the mirror. Although it's shown in my true self, I make no adjustments because I've deemed as, as acceptable the standard. That's why some people can come to the word of God with inaccuracy, look and carry on with, inaccur- with, the, with the inaccuracy. They don't, allow the, they don't allow the mirror to correct their perspective. They impose their perspective upon the mirror of the word. Right? Now, somebody, when I was preparing this, the moment I was typing this, a friend of mine on Facebook sends me this message, this, 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 this proverb, proverb, and I put it in, I, I realized God was giving me scriptural backup to what I was thinking. 
Proverbs 21, 2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but only the Lord weighs the heart. Hmm? Don't you think you are right in your own eyes? Most people have a sense of self-righteousness. I think I'm right on this one. No, I'm right. <laughs> Until now, you think you are right in your own eyes, the scripture says. But it says the Lord is the only one that will weigh your heart. That is why no matter how right you think you are over an issue, always bounce and check that view against the mirror of God's word. What you see of accurate principles will allow you to adjust your view. Amen? Yes, so tell you that we're not always right. <laughs> so you're not always right. You're always right in your own eyes, we know. But you may just be off. When, and I, this is so serious. You know why? We will grow and go and develop in the world. With, and we impose... A sense of rightness that we have grown to accept. But that sense of rightness is based upon our own opinions, not upon the absolute truth of God's infallible word. Hmm? So you shouldn't have treated that person like that. You say, but I was right to have treated that person like that. Because of X, Y, Z. I say to you, but you think you are right in your own eyes. What if I bring a standard of rightness and you judge what you've just done by the expectation of the word? You can be right in your own eyes. You dress all funny. You think you're fine. But you are wrong until the word of God corrects you. Now, can I get into something that's on my heart quickly? Go right to the end of the page. I just want to get this principle off my chest. Before tonight, we may not finish all of this tonight because of time, but listen carefully. In John 9, on, on page 10 at the bottom, in John 9, there was a man that was blind from his birth, remember? And how did Jesus heal him? Took the clay, put spittle, mixed some mud on his eye. And what did Jesus say to him? Go wash where? Go wash in the pool of Siloam is the correct pronunciation, or Siloam, as we normally say, right? What, what does the word Siloam mean? Scent. What does the word scent refer to? The apostolic. So, and what does water refer to? The word of God. So when Jesus said to him, go wash your, if you want to see properly, you see, you can come before the mirror, but because your sight is impaired, you can't see where you are wrong. And so you can't make the adjustment. So what do you need? Listen carefully. What does everybody need to have an accurate perspective of what is right when you look in the mirror? Because you can wear your cap this way. Well, I wouldn't wear Maybe that's the right. Because some young people think that's the right way. Right? You can wear your cap the wrong way and think it's right. What you need is your eyes to be washed by an apostolic source of doctrine. Once your eyes, and listen carefully, when Jesus said to the man, go wash, right? Go wash in the, in the pool of Siloam or Siloam. The word indicates, nipto, a cleansing, but also a perpetual cleansing. You don't go wash once, 
You go recurrently. You go all the time to cleanse your sight from things that might blur your vision of reality. That is why I cannot do without apostolic doctrine from authentic apostolic fathering graces. Why? I need to go to those pools. Because I will I could get washed by the word, yes. But also when I come privately to engage the word, I can really see things that are out of skew. Because my perspective has been adjusted by apostolic doctrine. Otherwise, we'll all be wearing our shirts back to front in the spirit. You need, an, uh, you need a plumb line. You need a yardstick. You need a standard by which you're going to judge what is true and what is, what is not. That is why I wrote a note at the bottom paragraph, listen carefully. Before James says to receive with humility the word that is able to save your souls, what does he first say? Therefore, put aside all filthiness. Put aside anything that remains, any residue of wickedness. Then receive the word that is able to save your soul. And filthiness alludes to immoral, immoral behavior. Right? And wickedness is, amongst many things, means ill will, a desire to injure another. Listen carefully. Put aside immorality. Contextually, he talks about being seduced by lust, James does. Being enticed, because if you submit to that, you sin, then you die. Do not be angry. Receive the word. Put aside all filthiness. James says, put aside all superfluity of the flesh. And naughtiness, he says. You put aside those things, then you'll be able. That is why a sensual, carnal person, consumed by lust, undealt with, not put aside. You engage the law of liberty, and you walk away, not making any adjustments. You—it's th- not that you don't—you don't see the thing that something's wrong with you. You can't see it because your eyes still got carnal mud blocking your perspective. Hmm? You need to be washed consistently in apostolic doctrine. Amen. Tell you never thank God for our apostles. If it wasn't for the apostolic, think of how many issues you would have approached wrongly this past year. The word of God is able to correct your perspective. Now, okay. Let's look at, at the bottom of page nine. Let me get straight into this quickly. The brazen laver. Remember in, noble, in, in, in Moses' tabernacle, it had three parts. The outer court, the holy place, and the, the holy zone, the holy of holies. In the outer court, there was a brazen altar of incense where the animal was sacrificed in the outer court. It was the first item you came to. It speaks about uh, justification by the blood of Christ, the sacrificed lamb. When you left the laver, the brazen altar, before you left the outer court and you would go into the holy place, there are three items of furniture, before you enter there, there was the laver. The laver, there's a picture at the bottom of page 9. 
the laver were two parts, the bottom part for your feet and the top part for your hands. The priest could not go in there with dirty feet and dirty hands. In fact, if he went in there unclean, he would have died on the spot. Hmm? But, so how did he know that his hands and his feet were dirty? How was the laver made? The laver was made from brass or looking glass. When, when Moses, read the accounts in Exodus, when, when Moses made this, he made it from literal mirrors, looking glasses from the women. These were not mirrors as we know them today. These were polished brass. So polished that it served the purposes of a mirror. So women gave up the preoccupation with personal appearance to benefit priests in the tabernacle. Think about the cost involved for those women. If you are a lady in that culture, <laughs> give up your mirror. Moses, I call all the mirrors forth in Jesus' name. <laughs> all the mirrors come forth. What, what, I'm just joking. <laughs> Listen carefully. So the women gave up the preoccupation with personal beauty for, to benefit priests functioning in the temple. What happened is, it's amazing to me. This laver had two parts. So it was made of this polished brass. So if you went, think of that bowl that you came and you looked into the bowl. What you saw? You saw yourself. Before priests could function, they had to have an accurate view of where they were in the spirit. In terms of their cleanliness. So dirty hands, it was full of water on both, both sides. If their hands were dirty, what they would do? Clean their hands, wash their Wash their feet. By the way, the laver was the only piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle that had no measurements. No specific measurements were given to Moses. For all the others, God would say, X by so much by so much. This high. When it came to this, you know why? The word of God cannot be measured. The word of God is immeasurable, unquantifiable. The water of the word... Right? You wash yourself in the water. And there are many scriptures that testify to the fact that the Bible is able to cleanse us. Like on the top of page 10, John 15, 3 and Ephesians 5. Right? You are clean, how? Through the word which I have spoken. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through your word. So what we need is clean hands and clean I didn't write this in your know, but your hands speak of your execution of God's purpose, your doing of the will. Feet speak of your movement or your progression in the purpose of God from one level to another. You need clean hands and clean feet. Second Corinthians 4.2 says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame. I like this. Not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Right? And clean feet, I'll just put one verse, Colossians 1.10, that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord unto all cleansing. Now, quickly, can I just take five minutes, then we're done. Listen carefully. If I look in the mirror and I see things that are out of skew, and after looking, I go and James says, I forget what I've seen. He likens it unto a man who's heard the word, but does not obey. Every time you disobey, you've just forgotten 
what you've seen of God's nature that should have exposed where you are. Right? Now, two things on the top of page A, two things. A failure to obey is equated to forgetting, which is essentially, it means this, an indifference or neglect. Now, the word for forget is epilanthanomai. It basically means neglect, not caring for. Giving over to oblivion, uncared for. So if, if you and I use the word forget today, what we mean is an inability to call to mind. Not so? Can't call to mind. You've forgotten. This word in the Greek doesn't mean that. And James says you've forgotten what you've heard. It doesn't mean you can't call to mind. What he's really saying is you haven't devoted the kind of attention and care to it as you should. You've neglected, right? And remember we said God is forgotten when his principles are no longer adhered to, right? I want to encourage you, don't become a forgetful hearer. So how you receive is important because when you hear it, you accord it weight, stature, and importance. So when you leave, you will give attention to your obedience because you won't simply dismiss it in your mind as he's talking hogwash inconsequential to my life. But you sit there with absolute sober and say, this is going to either determine the success or failure of my life. How you hear is important. Otherwise you leave and sad to say, I noted this in many people's lives. Forgetful hearers. Not that they can't, they can tell you the sermon from A to Z, but they don't give it due import to allow it to transform their lives. And secondly, listen carefully. James says, if you, if you hear and don't obey, you delude yourself. You are self-deceived. Okay? And it means in the Greek, to reason falsely or incorrectly, to mislead or to, to deceive. Now, look at point number three. Second Corinthians is my, one of my most favorite passages. Right? I wrote many songs about this verse. Listen carefully. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now where the Lord, where the Lord, now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, no, nothing hiding our sight as to our true state. With all unveiled face, beholding and as in a mirror, it says, what do we behold? As in the mirror? Listen carefully. When I come to the mirror, I see Rand of Barnwell. When I come to the mirror of the word, what do I see? The glory of the Lord. When I see glory means nature, exact nature. When I see his exact nature, I discover where I am through what I see of him. Now this verse is, with unveiled face, nothing preventing us, no veil preventing our sight, we look into the mirror, we see the glory of the Lord. What does it say? We are, everyone say transformed. Say it louder, transformed. Transformed into the same image. I am changed into what I see. I am transformed into the same image from glory to glory. What is glory? The exact representation of God's nature. From one level of nature to the next. I'm not talking about from weakness to strength. I'm talking about from one strength to the next level of strength. 
to the next level of strength. That is the culture of this house. Here we grow. From weakness to strength is restoration. From strength to strength is growth. You go from glory to glory. Let me just say this. I wrote in your note something like this. The very act of beholding is transformative. As you behold, you are transformed. Dependent upon whether you obey the demand of the Lord in what you see of Him in His Word. Because what does John, I'm going to remind you again, according to your note here, John 14, 21, what does it say? He hears it on page 9. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved of my Father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. Revelations of God through the mirror of this word happens to the one who is committed to obey. In the act of your obedience is the transforming power of the word of God released to you. What you have, what you have seen in his word and what you have seen as a requirement for your life in his word, as you do it, that you unlock the transforming power of the word. Now the word transformed is the Greek word at the top of the page, metamorpho. We get the English word metamorphosis from there. Metamorphosis describes a drastic change in two realms, both in internal constitution and in external form. So when a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly, before the caterpillar was earthbound, right? It had a certain internal constitution that was of a particular type. In the process of being metamorphosed, metamorphosis implies morph. The word morph means form. Like morph, morph, form. Meta in the Greek means to change or to move. Metamorphosis to change your form drastically from one state to another. So one day you came and you saw a caterpillar moving along, eating greens. Next day, let's say the process of transformation took place. If you came the next day looking for an earthbound creature, you would not find it. It's now this beautiful butterfly. Totally changing in form, function, and capacity than the day before. Earthbound, one day, airborne the next. Earthbound, one day, his, his whole realm of experience was this little patch of greenery. Now he can fly wherever he wants to. That's the power of drastic transformation that the Word of God can give you. When Paul uses these terms, he's using, ter using terms to convey principles. I am so excited about this. You know why? When, I, when I'm reading and studying this in the week, God is saying to me, as you consistently study through my word, every time you do it, two things are happening. Your internal constitution is changing, even without your knowledge. And one day people are going to come looking for you as a caterpillar. They won't find you because you'll be airborne somewhere else in a different location. The change would be so drastic, it'll be... You know, this happens overnight, eh? the metamorphosis process for a long internal process, but the actual change is, is so quick. Right? It breaks out and, right? tell you never I'm breaking out. Break out of your cocoon. <laughs> I really believe this. 
I take the analogy literally. I'm breaking out. Why? From what I've looked into the glory of the Lord, the Bible says, I am metamorphosed by what I see into that same image from one level to the next. The transforming process never stops, keeps growing. From one level of glory to the next level of glory. Hmm? Listen carefully. That is why you've got to be consistent. Hmm? Don't come to me. Let's say one day I, I, I hit a great spiritual elevation. Let's say next month. Some supernatural things happening in my life. And let's say, Dion, you meet me and say, Wow, Randall, what happened? You're in a vastly different place. New capacities, new insights, new sight, new elevation, new capacities. Right? You just noticed the change, but you haven't been part of the process. People want drastic change, not willing to submit to the process. That caterpillar is not just a butterfly overnight. Hmm? And I want to encourage you. We are about to take off. That is why, let me close with this. I trust you, I'm really closing. Two minutes. In the middle of page nine. That's why James says, look intently. Look. Behold. Intently. I just love the meaning of this word. It says, look, therefore, he who looks intently into the perfect law, the mirror of God's word, the law of liberty, and does what? And abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. Look at the word intently. The Greek is, Parakupto, and it means, I like the meaning, to bend beside. That is, to lean over and to peer. I just love this imagery. Eh? To look down into, to stoop to a thing in order to look at it. Metaphorically, to look carefully into, to inspect curiously. If I were to demonstrate it, if you're in an elevated position, the root, kupto, literally means to stoop down. So it means to like peer over, to lean with keen interest, to peer into a thing. When last have you done that to the word of the Lord? When last have you deliberately bent over, looked into it intently? You see, the look is no longer acceptable. To look into the word, it's obsolete. You're going to look intently. A casual reading every now and then will not make the gradient's current season. You've got to study daily. If ever you're going to experience this rate of transformation, I want to urge the house, all the young people, Joash and company, the young girls there, even as young as Keegan, you hear every Friday, I want to commend you as young as you are. Right? All the young people and those of us who are more mature, I won't say older, <laughs> okay. all of us. Do yourself a favor. Read daily. Study daily. Anybody leave home without checking yourself in the mirror? Anybody? You, you just have faith, trust that you're doing the right thing. I, there's not too many people I know. We need that mirror to double check. Hmm? You do it almost like without thinking. It's like you do things without thinking. The word must become so habitual in your life. You do it and somebody looks at you like, you know, what is this? Well, this is what we do. We look into the mirror to check. This is what we do. We read. We don't just look. We look intently into the law. Amen?
and we are changed from one level of glory to another. Amen.